If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I encourage you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. In the providence of the Lord, today we are going to be starting a, a series on the Great Commission. Something that was, uh, I think, most of us who knew Miss Bonnie is very near and dear to her heart. And... Um, Excited to be able to do this. Uh, we'll continue our study in Romans when Jeff preaches, and then when I preach, it, we will continue uh, through uh, probably three or maybe four messages on the Great Commission. Just as a reminder, um, the Great Commission, as we know it, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, is found in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew being one of Jesus' apostles. Um, and what you can see is, as you read through Matthew, you see that Matthew has a, a purpose. He has an intention. And one of his intentions is, is that he wants to, to show uh, the reader of this gospel that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of all the promises that were made of the Messiah who was to come. And so you'll see Matthew saying things like uh, that Jesus does something or says something, and he'll say, this was to fulfill what was written by the prophet Isaiah or, or another prophet. And so um, as we come into Matthew chapter 28... Um, and we, at this point, Jesus has, has been crucified. Uh, he has been uh, laid in the tomb, and He has risen from the dead, and He has already made appearances to certain people. And Jesus is, in this last section of the last chapter in Matthew, going to give uh, the apostles, as well as every single disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, a commission. What are we to do on this earth now that He is gone? And one of the things that I hope that you will see today as we go through this sermon is, is that Matthew's continuing his task to show how Jesus, even in this great commission, how Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of what was promised in the Old Testament. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to start today in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always." To the end of the age. Let's pray. Our glorious Lord, we come to you this morning um, reminded of the reality of our, our insufficiencies and our inadequacies and our weaknesses. And we recognize today how much we need you. I know that I need you. I need your power to rest upon me, for I know that there is not any heart that can be grown in your grace, and there is not any heart that can be converted in your grace without your Spirit accompanying the preaching of your Word. And so today, Lord, I am dependent upon that, and I know that everyone who hears this message is dependent upon that, that you would do the good work with your Word that you've promised to do. I ask, Lord, for your blessings to be upon this message, and that, Lord, we would, we would not leave here uh, the same way that we came in, asking for your blessings and grace in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, a disgruntled look came across Lucy's face. I had clearly struck a nerve by something that I had just said. You see, a group of us were out to, to lunch from our church in Kentucky, and the topic of evangelism had come up. And Lucy, who is seriously probably the most introverted person that I've ever met in my life, Lucy piped up and expressed her sincere belief that her duty as a follower of Christ was to live a godly life in the midst of an ungodly world, but that when it came to sharing the gospel with people, that that wasn't her duty. It wasn't something that was necessary for someone like her. Now, I'm not sure exactly what Lucy's thought process was, but when I heard that, I took it to mean that that she thought that sharing the gospel, proclaiming the gospel was something that was reserved for preachers and missionaries and perhaps even super-Christians. And so I began to push back on her deeply held belief. And let's just say that things got a little uncomfortable for a while. I wish I could tell you this morning that Lucy's perspective is unusual in the church. But the truth is, it's not unusual at all. It permeates all of us at some level. Why is it that so many of us in the American church are either resistant or apathetic or hesitant to proclaim Christ to our families and friends and neighbors and those that we have contact with when we absolutely live in probably one of the safest places in the world to do that? right? Why is there such a discrepancy between us and people like Melingumu in Uganda, who despite 11 murder attempts on his head for proclaiming Christ, he will not and cannot keep his mouth shut? Well, we could do a lot of things to be able to try to figure out why that's the case. We could consult one of the many surveys that come out as to why Christians don't share the gospel. Some of those things that you'll see on lists like that are fear or not feeling equipped enough. But I can save us a ton of time this morning by really getting to the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue is the same reason that when God marched the Israelites to the, to the, to the edge of the promised land, the reason that they didn't go in, and that reason is unbelief. Unbelief. Now, I'm not saying this morning that we don't believe that God exists. I'm not even saying that we don't believe the gospel. But what I am saying is that we may have some holes in our belief in what it means that Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. Holes that are causing us to not be as faithful as we should. And unless we plug those holes, we will have no fuel to drive us to proclaim Christ to a lost and a dying world. This morning, my goal is to unpack what Christ meant when He said that He has all authority and to con convince you that His authority is the fuel for the Great Commission. His authority is the fuel to go and proclaim Christ. Now, I want you to keep in mind this morning before we even jump into this that, that we're going to be spending several sermons on, on Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission. So we're not going to go over everything today. Uh, in upcoming sermons, we'll look at things like what our task is. Hint, our task is not only evangelism. We'll be looking at what our boundaries are. Hint, it's not just Swansboro. And we'll look at who is with us, even when we're alone. Hint, it is Christ through His Spirit. But today, our focus is 
on what Jesus started the Great Commission with, and that is His exhaustive authority. The main point I want you to take away today is this, that the fuel to go and make disciples is found in trusting that Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. Before we jump in this morning, what exactly is authority? Well, it's, it's power, it's rule, it's control. A king has authority over the realm of his kingdom. And so first thing I want us to observe as we go into Matthew, chapter eight, uh, Matthew 28, 18, is I want you to observe the scope of Jesus' authority. Look what he says. And Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority, not partial authority, not most authority, not 99.9% of authority with a little bit left outside of his authority, but all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What does Jesus mean that he has all authority in heaven and on earth? Well, this is a rhetorical device that we see used over and over in the scriptures that's meant to communicate simply everything in creation, everything that exists. You may remember Genesis 1.1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does that mean? It means he created everything without exception as, as we continue to read those verses that follow that. Or how about a little bit more detail here in Colossians 1.16, for by him, speaking of Jesus, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. See, there's that in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. In other words, he created everything that exists without exception. And so... When Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, what he's saying is, is that he has authority over absolutely everything in all creation. I, he is saying to us, I have been given universal dominion over everything. There is nothing left outside of my control. Angels are at my beck and call. Satan and demons are on a leash, and I'm the leash holder. And all they can do is accomplish my sovereign agenda, whether they know it or not. The most powerful kings and dictators and presidents of this world are my servants, even if they hate me and my church. Their hearts are like a stream of water in my hands. I will turn them wherever I please in order to accomplish my sovereign agenda. The rise and fall of nations is in my hands. Time is in my hands. Every life and every death is in my hands. Salvation and judgment is in my hands. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so we see that the scope of Jesus' authority is, is universal. It's unlimited. It's unrestricted. It's without bounds. Everything is under His sovereign control and power. Next thing I want you to observe is that when Jesus speaks these words in, in Matthew uh, chapter 28, verse 18, prophecy has been fulfilled. I want you to see how Jesus is, is leading us to the place where we understand that a prophecy has been fulfilled. See, if we peruse the, the Gospels, we'll quickly see that Jesus continually refers to himself at, with a very mysterious title. And that title is the Son of Man. 
In fact, in this gospel that we're looking at today, Matthew's gospel, he refers, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man almost 30 different times. And so by the time we get to this last chapter in Matthew, to this climactic ending and climactic moment where the resurrected Jesus is commissioning his apostles to go to the nations and his church, meaning us, to go to the nations, he's been preparing us for these words that he chooses very, very carefully. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You see, these are not words that just appear to us out of nowhere. To any Jew that that knew their Old Testament, Jesus was speaking very familiar words, very familiar ideas, very familiar concepts. Listen to what Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13, a vision that Daniel saw, who uh, speaking of, of the Messiah that was to come. Listen to what it says. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." So when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he's saying, Daniel's prophecy has been fulfilled. I am the son of man who has been given sovereign authority over everything. Now, interestingly enough, this royal coronation ceremony that that Daniel saw in his vision as the king was was being crowned was just about to be fulfilled when Jesus ascended into heaven. In Acts chapter 1, we're told that when Jesus ascended, it says that a cloud took him out of the sight of his apostles. And in Daniel chapter 7, we actually get to see where that cloud took him. It took him to the ancient of days. Daniel says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him for what? To be crowned the King of kings and the Lord of lords forever a clear fulfillment of the promise that God had made to David in his covenant with David that from David's line there would come one who would sit on David's throne forever. And indeed, Jesus is saying, I am that one. Next, I want you to observe the purpose for Christ's authority. The purpose that he was given unlimited control over all creation. Look what it says in verse 14 in Daniel. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Why? For what purpose? That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Now, if you actually go through the book of Daniel and you actually go and look where this, this word serve occurs all throughout Daniel, what you'll see that it means, it means to worship him. It means to worship him. You see, one of the primary purposes for for Christ receiving sovereign authority over everything is so that people from Swansboro, North Carolina, all the way to Shanghai, China, would worship Him. Let me just ask the question, why, why should anybody do such a thing? Why should anyone bow the knee to Christ to worship Him? Well, let's just make it simple. Because it's appropriate. Because He's worthy. 
I want to give you two reasons why he's worthy. He's worthy of worship from people from every single nation. First, it's because he is their creator. He is your creator. He is my creator. Every single human being owes our existence to him. John says this in the first chapter of his gospel. He says, all things were made through him. Who? Jesus. (laughs) And without him was not anything made that was made. And then years later in John's revelation, John gets to see this this vision of the throne of Christ and the elders that are before the throne of Christ casting down their crowns before Him. And the elders are saying in their worship, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. See, you're a human being today because Christ... It was Christ's will for you to be a human being today. You're dependent upon Him for your very existence, even right in this very moment. Every breath, every heartbeat, every ounce of food and drink that goes into your mouth, everything, you owe it all to Christ. You're breathing His air. You're eating His food. It's your blood, His blood, that really He's given you that pumps through your veins. And And it's been His goodness that has allowed you to do that and allowed you to have those things and because of that he is worthy of your worship because he is your creator but he's also worthy of worship for another reason because he is the redeemer now in order for us to understand why we need a redeemer we have to understand the reality of what the scriptures teach about us the scriptures tell us in romans three twenty three that For all of us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What that means is is that we are not good people. When we actually compare ourselves not to other people, we actually compare ourselves to God's actual standard, which is the Ten Commandments. What that shows us is not, wow, Corey is great. He's a really good guy. Man, he's spotless. No. It shows Corey to be a liar. It shows Corey to be a thief. It shows Corey to be an adulterer at heart because of lust. It shows Corey to be uh, a a man who uses God's name in vain, who doesn't honor God in the way that he should. And it shows you the same thing as well. And so the scriptures tell us that for the wages of sin is not life. The wages of sin is death. Speaking of, yes, physical death, but also that second death, which which is hell forever. God has said that the soul that sins shall die, hence why we need a redeemer. (laughs) The scriptures tell us the most amazing thing, that the creator, the agent of creation, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, that he humbled himself by taking on a human nature just like ours, human flesh just like you and me, truly God and truly man. He was born under his own law, responsible to keep the law just like you and me. But where you and I failed, as we've just seen, he succeeded. A perfect, spotless life of obedience to the law of God in thought and word and in deed for the entirety of his life. And though he was perfect, his own people condemned him falsely as a criminal and they handed him over to the Romans and he was nailed to a dreadful cross. On that cross... According to the plan of God, on that cross is as if Jesus went into the courtroom of heaven 
And he went over to the evidence table where the sins of his people was stacked as high as you can imagine. And he went over and he scraped all of them off and he said, this belongs to me. And the wrath of God that would have come crushing down on his people in hell instead came crushing down on Jesus Christ in their place. His payment on his people's behalf, it wasn't a down payment. It wasn't a partial payment. It was a full and a complete payment evidenced by what Jesus said before he took his last breath. It is finished. He laid down his life. His cold and lifeless body was taken off that cross and placed in a tomb and sealed so that nobody could come and steal his body. But there is no amount of sealing that could have kept Jesus from rising from the dead on the third day, which is exactly what he did, just as the scriptures had prophesied that he would do. An undeniable sign that it's all true. And for all who will repent and trust in Christ, he has promised to redeem them. He has promised to cancel their sin debt by His payment on the cross on their behalf and to gift them something that they have never had before, to gift them a perfect record of righteousness through His perfect sinless life, given to them as a gift, as if they had lived that perfect sinless life. Listen, if you're here today and you've not repented and trusted in Christ, do not make the fatal mistake to think that all is well between you and God. God is not going to compare you to other people. God is going to compare you to His perfect law. And if you have violated that perfect law, you will face Jesus on Judgment Day, but you will not face Him as your Savior. You will face Him as your judge, and you will hear from from Him, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you, and you will be sentenced to hell forever. And I... I and everyone here who knows the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't want that for you. We don't want that for you. So please, today, repent and trust in Christ. Turn from your sin. Awake, O sleeper. Turn to Christ and follow Him according to His Word for the rest of the days of your life. And trust in what Christ has accomplished through His work, through His life, death, and resurrection on your behalf. Listen, He is the Redeemer. I hope he becomes your redeemer if he's not already. See, he has purchased a people from the nations and he is worthy of worship for that. See, this is part of the fuel for the Great Commission. Worship, right? Why do we go to our families and friends and neighbors in obedience to the Great Commission? Why do we get into uncomfortable conversations with people about Jesus? Why do we sacrifice our time and our money and in some cases relationships to tell others about Christ? Why do some of us leave everything and go to some of the most difficult and hostile places in the world to make Christ known in places that He's not known? Answer, because He's worthy. He's worthy of worship. He's worthy of our obedience, which is worship, but He's also worthy of the worship of people from every nation and every language everywhere. And so we are fueled by this insatiable desire that Christ would receive the worship that He is due from people from every nation. And so we go. So we've looked at this morning, we've looked at why Christ should be worshiped, right? But now let's, let's look at how someone becomes a worshiper of Christ. How does that happen? Well, in Daniel's vision, it says that the Son of Man was given unlimited authority for the purpose that people everywhere on the globe should worship Him. In other words, the purpose of Christ's authority is to create worshipers all over the world. So hang with me here. 
See, the Bible uses very picturesque languages to, language to describe mankind's spiritual state at birth. One of those words is dead. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, chapter 1. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, most of us in this room have probably been brought face to face with someone who is dead. We've seen a cold and lifeless body, perhaps in a hospital bed or in a casket. It's unforgettable, isn't it? And we know that 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 body is unresponsive no matter what we do. No matter how much we yell, no matter how much we prod, no matter how much we plead, that dead body is not coming back to life. In the same way, every single human being is born that way spiritually, dead, unresponsive to God. In fact, not just unresponsive to God, but anti-responsive to God, right? With a sin nature that manifests itself in rebellion to God and His law. But for the dead man, in his own estimation, he's not an enemy of God. For the dead man, in his own estimation, he's not a rebel. But that's because he's looking at himself through dead man's eyes. In fact, he's darkened in his understanding, the Scriptures tell us. He's blind to the fact that if he would place himself under the scrutiny of God's law, if he would, if he would place himself under the scrutiny of the Ten Commandments like a mirror, what he would see in that mirror is a skeleton, dead man's bones. Just like a dead corpse in a casket, he can't bring himself back to life. Just like a dead corpse in a casket, even if he could try to bring himself back to life, he wouldn't because he loves his sin too much. Such a man will never, ever, 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 ever bow the knee to Christ in worship because he is dead. And herein is why Christ's enthronement to the place of authority over everything is necessary. Necessary to create worshipers from all peoples and nations and languages because He alone, as the one with authority over everything, He alone has the power to resurrect the spiritually dead. This is why Jesus says things like this in John chapter 17 in His high priestly prayer. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You since you have given him authority over all flesh, over all peoples, over all nations and languages. You've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. (laughs) Jesus has been given the power to resurrect the spiritually dead through his spirit and to give them eternal life. And he says here that he will most certainly do that for all whom the Father has given to him. And Jesus is speaking of who the Father gave Him before the foundation of the world. God chose a people from every nation before the foundation of the world. And guess what? I don't know who those people are, and you don't know who those people are, but we have given the task to go and tell everyone. Everyone. But don't miss the logic here. (laughs) The only way for knees to bow in worship is for dead hearts to be resurrected. And the only way for dead hearts to be resurrected is that there must be someone who has the power over those hearts to resurrect them. And that, my brothers and sisters, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and He is on a mission to resurrect the spiritually dead and create worshipers from all peoples and nations and languages, just as Daniel saw in his vision. And here is the bombshell of the Great Commission. Hold on to your seats. 
He, Christ, is going to perform these spiritual resurrections through you and through me and through believing saints everywhere. Look what he says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, stay put and watch me create worshipers without you. No. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Go and make worshipers. And next time we're going to see how we do that, what our task is, which is through partly is through proclaiming the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation, and then teaching disciples everything he has commanded but ask most evangelicals today in the church, American church, why they should participate in the Great Commission. And the most common answer you'll probably get is because Christ has told me to. And that's true, right? Christ has told us to go and, and make disciples. He sent us out on this Great Commission. We do have a duty. We do have a responsibility because our Lord has commanded us to go and make disciples. We can see that right here in Matthew 28. But what I'm convinced of I'm convinced that few people realize is, is that this unlimited authority, Christ's unlimited authority, His complete control over all things is also the fuel for the Great Commission. The Great Commission has a great motivation. And that great motivation is the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. Over all peoples that you will ever encounter and you will ever open your mouth to share the gospel with, over all events that ever take place in your life, in my life. He's over that. He's over all the minutest details that happen in this world. Let me just ask you, if you were a soldier and you had to go to battle, how different would your perspective be? How different would your motivation be if you knew that your general had authority over the enemy army? that your general had complete control of the enemy army, that your general had complete control of the outcome of what would happen, I'll tell you what you'd feel like. You'd be invigorated. You'd be motivated. You, you would be infused with courage. Well, brothers and sisters, our king has that type of control, not just over an enemy army, but over all of creation. Everything is at his disposal, and that should fuel us for the great commission. For the rest of our time together, I really want us to get into application. I want to offer you three reasons why Christ's exhaustive authority should fuel you to go and make disciples. Three reasons that Christ's authority should fuel you to go make disciples. First, if Christ has all authority, He can save people through you despite your weaknesses and fears. Oh, to be a fly on the wall when Paul proclaimed the gospel in places like Thessalonica and Corinth. Listen to what he says about his first visit to Corinth when he brought the gospel to them. He says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or, or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Listen to this. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says that he was weak. Paul says that he was fearful. Paul says that he was trembling. Perhaps his voice was shaking. Maybe his knees were knocking. Maybe his hands were trembling in fear. Have you ever felt that way when you're sharing the gospel with somebody? Have you ever felt that way when you're thinking about the possibility of eventually sharing the gospel with somebody? <laughs> Did you think in that moment that your fear and your weakness would somehow blow it? 
Did you think in that moment that your weakness and fears could somehow hinder Christ from saving that person through you? Now, we may not articulate it that way in our brains, but we think that way sometimes, don't we? We think that our thoughts like, like this that will throw a wet blanket on sharing the gospel with others. Oh, I can't share the gospel because I'm an introvert. I just can't. I'm just not good at talking to people. Or I can't share the gospel because I'm just not ready. I just feel so ill-prepared. I need more equipping. Or I can't share the gospel because I'm, I have a physical or a, or a social ailment or malady that people would just be turned off by. Or I can't share the gospel because I'm just so scared. I'm just fearful to do it. You see what all of these assume? They assume that Christ's power is somehow restricted by your weakness. The fact that you're an introvert or you don't feel ready or you have a physical ailment or you're fearful somehow limits Christ's power to save a person through you. You know, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. And so we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need, to be, we need to replace those false ideas that we've adopted with the truth about Christ's authority. We need to change what we're saying in our minds. Yes, I'm an introvert and I'm, I'm not good at talking to people, but guess what? Christ is on His throne and He's commanded me to go and He can work through a weak person like me. Or I'm so fearful to share the gospel. But you know what? I'm trusting Christ is, is going to be there and He's in complete control of the outcome and so I'm just going to do it anyway. You see, we have to learn to connect our weaknesses to Christ's power. We have to learn to look at our weaknesses in the light of Christ's authority. Just like Paul, so we can hear with him in his weakness. In 2 Corinthians 12, where the Lord had said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And when we actually trust that... <laughs> Guess what we can say? We can say the exact same, same, same thing that Paul says in this passage. He says, oh, that's the case. I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. You see, just like in Corinth, just like in Thessalonica, and I would argue every single place that a church is birthed in this world, it has all been birthed in the midst of weakness and in the midst of fear from who, those whom went there. All because, even in our weaknesses, even in our fears, all because Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. And that is fuel for the Great Commission. Secondly, if Christ has all authority, the deadest, hardest, most recalcitrant, most resistant heart is no match for Him. If we think back to Ephesians 2 that we looked at earlier, the fact that every single human being is born in a place where they are Paul describes as dead in trespasses and sins. And we think back to that picture that I tried to get you to think about earlier of that corpse in a casket and the vanity of us pleading and prodding that body to come back to life. You know that it would be just as futile for us to plead with the spiritually dead to come back to life if it weren't for one transformative truth. And that transformative truth is that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ, including the authority to raise the spiritually dead to life. See, when Paul walked into places like Ephesus and Thessalonica, he saw spiritually dead people everywhere. A people so darkened in their understanding and so steeped in idol worship and so engulfed in sexual immorality and a host of other sins. Paul didn't pack his bags and say, ah, these people are too far gone. They're too deep in it. 
right? No, he knew that their only hope was to be raised from the dead by Christ through the proclamation of the gospel, which is Christ's means to bring spiritually dead people back to life. And so what did he do? He opened up his mouth, and Christ did just that for so many in those places, raised them from the dead. Paul recounts one example of that in his, this resurrection miracle that took place in Thessalonica. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. How do we know that? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Do you know that the deadest, hardest, most recalcitrant, most resistant heart in Thessalonica was no match for Christ? Do you know that the deadest, hardest, most resistant, most recalcitrant heart in, the, in your life, somebody that you know, is no match for Christ? So why do we live so often if that's not, as if that's not true? Why do we look at certain people who are without question dead and steeped in sin and act as if they are too far gone? Now, we might not say that, and we might not even think that we think that, but we show what we believe by giving up on them and failing to continue to pursue them with the gospel. Some of us, we have family members. Some of us, we have friends. Some of us, we have co-workers, right, who are swimming in a sea of spiritual deadness, and we've given up on them because somehow we think that their deadness is just too dead, and it's somehow able to resist Christ's power to resurrect them. We think things like this, oh, my son, he's, he's just too deep in sin, or... My friend, she, she's just too set in her ways. Or, or my coworker, he's just too ingrained in his false religion. Child of God, don't forget that you too were once dead. Don't forget that some of us in this room were once too deep in sin. Some of us in this room were, were once too set in our ways. Some of us were once too ingrained in a false religion. But none of that was a match for Christ when He determined to raise you from the dead through the hearing of the gospel through weak people's lips. We must learn to never give up hope, to never stop pursuing people with the gospel while they still have breath in their lungs. With discernment, of course. We have to be discerning in that. But our continual hope and pursuit of them is evidence that we actually believe that Christ is able to subdue them. Our continual pursuit of them is evidence that we, we do really believe that He is more powerful than their deadness and their rebellion. See, His authority, His, His authority is fuel for the Great Commission to spiritually dead people. Third, if Christ has all authority, even closed doors are opportunities. Even closed doors are opportunities. If we understand Christ's authority right, rightly, we will understand that if doors for the gospel are, are open, it is Christ who has opened them. And that we will understand if doors for the gospel are closed, it is Christ who has closed them. He is a captain, is our captain. He is the captain of the Great Commission. He has control of this ship. He has control, and he steers it wherever he pleases to accomplish his mission. And you can see this nowhere clearer than Acts chapter 16 in Paul's missionary journey. Luke recounts, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Listen, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, closed door. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them, closed door. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul at night. A man in Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. 
And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And if we continue to read, what do we see? We see that this closed door in Asia and the closed door in Bithynia ended up leading to the conversion of people in Macedonia. People from places like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth, many of which are are letters in our Bibles to those churches through the closed doors of those places redirecting. See, Christ is the captain of the Great Commission and closed doors are His way of redirecting us to places and people that we may have never sought in our own wisdom. Do you realize that that is just as true today as it was in Acts chapter 16? That, that if a door has, that, that, that Christ has all authority and therefore doors that are closed are also opportunities? It's His directing? One of the most... In, in, Invigorating examples to me of this has, is a, as a church in the western part of the state called Drury Dobbins Baptist Church in Ellenboro, North Carolina. You've probably never heard of it. This church is situated just outside of a town where one of North Carolina's uh, most uh, liberal Bapti- theologically liberal Baptist universities is found. And as is the case where many, many seminaries are found, the churches around those uh, seminaries tend to reflect the theological views of the seminary. Well, it's no different here. The churches are also biblically, theologically liberal biblically. They are biblically unfaithful. That's what that means. They are muddying the gospel, not making it clear. Well, in mid-2018, Drury Dobbins Baptist Church uh, did not have a pastor, and so they called a gentleman by the name of Ronald Roberts to be the pastor of their roughly 30-member congregation. Roberts came in, and he immediately started to preach the doctrines of grace. If you don't know what that is, in a nutshell, it's what the Bible teaches about God's sovereignty and salvation. And it wasn't long. By March 2020, the congregation had increased from 30 to 100. It seemed as if a door had opened for the gospel. I'm sure the congregation was really, really excited. But then just as quickly as that door opened, the door shut, literally. COVID hit. And Drury Dobbins, just like many churches like ours, were scrambling to figure out what to do at the time. And so they decided that they were going to bring in a flatbed trailer and pull it in outside. And and Roberts was going to preach on on the Lord's Day outdoors to the congregation. Well, as time went on, the unfaithful churches that were all around Drury Dobbins Baptist Church, they continued to stay closed. (laughs) And as the members of those unfaithful churches became antsy, And they wanted to get back to church. And so they learned probably through the witness of the church that Drury Dobbins was holding an outdoor service. And so they started to come. And then more started to come. And then more started to come. Roberts continued to preach the undiluted word of God from that flatbed trailer. The church ministered to the people that were coming to them. And spiritual resurrection started to take place as many were converted. Do you know? That today, this congregation is so large that they can't even meet in their church building. That they have to meet every Lord's Day in an enormous outdoor tent where I'm told that they see upwards of 300 people each Lord's Day. Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth and closed doors are just much of opportunities as open doors. He is captaining His ship and He's using pandemics And he's using natural disasters, and he's using the rise and fall of nations, and he's using the installation and removal of presidents, and he's using the ever-changing ideologies of the world, and he's using even the death of those we love 
to steer us to places and people that we would have never gone for and towards before. So let me ask you today, what closed doors have frustrated you? Has COVID frustrated you? Do you realize that if it weren't for COVID, we may have never bit the bullet and bought that camera back on the wall and now we live stream? Do you know that now gospel-rich sermons are, sermons are making their way outside of these walls because of that camera? Many of you, in fact, I know are sharing sermons with your lost friends and even people who are involved in unfaithful churches. You may not know this, but we receive emails quite often of people that somehow find, find us on cyberspace. And they, are, they, they email reporting that they've watched our sermons and that they have been challenged and convicted and blessed by the Word of God that they're hearing. Do you realize that if it weren't for COVID, many of you who are here today would not be here otherwise? <laughs> right? While many churches were seeing their, their memberships drain during COVID, the Lord blessed our membership with substantial growth. And now... Maybe some of you, maybe some of you came from unfaithful churches, but now you're planted in, in soil where you can, you can grow. Do you realize that if it weren't for COVID, we may have never started to do the level of outdoor ministry that we're doing and trying to do, right? Holding evening worship services sometimes in Cedar Point Park and, and doing the Christmas sing, hymn sing like we did this past year at the Pug Pavilion in downtown Swansboro. And guess what? Now that we have our feet wet, the elders are bent on doing that a lot this year. And so I hope you're ready for that. We want to get the gospel out into the public square. Has it been frustrating to you that we haven't found a church building yet? Hmm. If it has, rejoice. The Lord has a great commission purpose for it. I don't know what He's going to do and I don't know why He's doing it, but we can be assured that He is directing us because He is the captain of the ship. Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth and closed doors are opportunities. And we must start looking at the things that happen in our lives through this lens, through the lens of His authority. And that is fuel, fuel to keep us going. Fuel to keep us hoping, fuel to keep us seeking our Lord as to where He's leading us in this mission that He has to save a people from every nation that He most certainly will save. As we move to a close this morning, I hope that you have seen today that Christ's authority is not just the basis for the Great Commission. Why should, we, why should we participate in the Great Commission? Because Christ told us so. That's true. But it is also, His authority is also the fuel for the Great Commission. I want to share the rest of Lucy's story with you that I started with today. A few months after that uncomfortable conversation that day, Lucy's understanding of her, where Lucy's understanding of her uh, responsibility in the Great Commission was challenged. She received a call from her that her unsaved grandmother was on her deathbed. And Lucy immediately flew out to Missouri and she went to be by her grandmother's bedside and her grandmother was hanging by a thread over the flames of hell, literally, and, and, and Lucy knew that. And she knew that only Christ could rescue her. And she was the only one there that could preach and speak the gospel to her grandmother. And so Lucy opened her mouth and began to share the gospel. I'm sure it was unpolished. I'm sure that her, her voice was shaking. I'm, I'm sure that her hands were trembling in fear, but she did it. Well, sadly, her grandmother rejected Christ's offer of salvation. And she tried to reassure Lucy that she was fine without Christ. And I'm sure that crushed Lucy. A couple days later, Lucy's sitting by her dying grandmother's bedside. And her grandmother, out of nowhere, pipes up and says, Lucy, 
why haven't you continued to talk to me about Jesus? Lucy brightened up and began to share Christ with her again. And right then and there, Lucy's grandmother made a profession of faith in Christ. And Lucy thinks that it was genuine. You see, Lucy came face to face with the reality that Christ is indeed in authority. His power worked through the, the, through the gospel despite her weaknesses and fears. His power worked to resurrect her grandmother's dead and resistant heart. His power worked in spite of what seemed like a closed door as her grandmother's time was running out. And all of that is incredibly encouraging. But what encourages me most is what happened next. Now, with a firm trust in the authority of Christ, Lucy was fueled to start sharing the gospel with others. Just a few weeks later, sitting down with a friend at at, at the lunch table and sharing Christ with her. You see, brothers and sisters, the fuel to go and make disciples, even in your weakness, even in your fears, even with dead, resistant people, Even with closed doors, the fuel to go and make disciples is found in trusting that Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. Trust that today and go make disciples. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today thanking that you have given your Son all authority in heaven and on earth. We're thankful for this great commission that he has entrusted to us. It's a great commission that is intimidating sometimes. But yet, you have promised us that Christ is in authority over all creation. He has authority and power and control over everything. And I just ask today, Lord... But first, that you'd forgive us for our negligence. You'd forgive us for our unfaithfulness. I don't know that there's one person in this room that says, I am faithful to the Great Commission. (laughs) And Lord, we are asking today that not only would you forgive us, but you 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 would move us. That we would truly trust the truth that Christ is in authority over all things. And that would fuel us to go out today. Today and proclaim Christ. What do we need to do today? Perhaps you put something specific on on our hearts. Lord, let us not let the day go by until we do it. And we pray, Lord, that, that just like you did with Lucy, that you would invigorate us, that you would fuel us. Lord, to, to move from the place that we are and to move to more faithfulness in this great commission. And we pray and praise you for your good work at Drury Dobbins Baptist Church. And we ask, Lord, that you would do that in more churches. Lord, we ask that you do that at our church. That we would see a mass of conversions. Because, not because we're, we're strong and silver-tongued, but because your power is being met in your word being preached and taught. So we commit this to you today. And we thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen.